Hi, friends, and welcome to the Good Work Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Leonard, and we are here to ask the question, what does good work mean to you? We'll explore the values that drive us, the tensions we wrestle with, and ultimately how we connect the dots between achievement and fulfillment in our lives. Sound heavy? Nah. Let's lighten up and dive in. I am here today with Jack Bensery and Minda Gold, friends that I have had the privilege of getting to know over the last couple of years, and they are in fact married to each other, so it's wonderful to see your faces. Thank you for being here. I enjoy you both so much, and I know that everybody else will too. A little bit about both of you. Minda, you are an independent family physician in rural Maine, and you said you literally thought about being a doctor since you were two years old. And I want to hear more about that. But you've gone from serving inner city folks during the AIDS epidemic to smaller cities to now rural means. You've served really diverse communities throughout your tenure as a physician. And Jacques, you are an internationally you know, recognized and well-respected, acclaimed artist and sculptor. And I love reading your kind of artistic thesis. So I'm going to read it now. Striving to create an illusion of reality, Jacques' vision and inspiration begins with repetitive patterns derived from the golden mean or divine proportions. The marriage of pattern, form, and proportion conveys a sense of growth from within each of his pieces. And if you have a chance to see Jacques' work in person, I highly encourage you to. Um, You have taught, collaborated, spoken all over the world, too many accolades to name, and you've participated in many collaborative art projects around the world, including being the lead artist for the Copra Project in Turkey and Brick by Brick in Nepal, and you've been celebrated in over 30 publications, um, just one to mention, you know, new masters of wood turning. So having seen your work in person, I can agree you are a master. And so I'm grateful to have your creative mind in this conversation. So Jacques and Minda, welcome to you both. Thank Thank you. you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So let's dive in. I want to uh, start a little bit at the beginning with, you know, how you both kind of found your way to the work that you do now and to each other, because let's be honest, personal stories are also really fun. Well, I, I think it's funny because Jack's sisters described us as both being weird enough for each other. Um, <laughs> and because one of the first times they met me, there was a rainstorm and we went out barefoot and were tromping in puddles and got soaked. And they just could not understand why we would do something like that. But we actually met while uh, I had a year working in a camping store in New Jersey and I was selling backpacks. And Jack came in and a whole bunch of us thought he was really cute and really nice. And he was working for the Boy Scouts. And um, we just, you know, started developing a friendship. And eventually one of the other managers thought we would be a really good couple. And she gave him my work schedule so he could show up on a day I was going to be there. And he eventually asked out after months. And our first date was the day that I got my acceptance to medical school. So he has literally been with me through my entire training. And learned a lot of useless medical facts that he doesn't use very much in woodworking, but he can get a few laughs out of a group of doctors sitting together. <laughs> Were you the one kind of holding the flashcards? 
preparing for exams? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think in med school, I, when I would stay down at, at Minda's apartment, I would I would listen to them study together, the three roommates, and I would pick up enough that in the first month I was like, oh, yeah, I can follow this. And then they got to gross anatomy <laughs> and I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm but I done. still remember a bunch of the stuff. And, yeah. And every once in a while I throw it out there when a doctor's in the room, you know, and they go, oh, <laughs> how did you know that? Yeah. How did you know that? Oh, my gosh. But we we were both in New Jersey and we each knew it was a temporary thing. It was not. That was where we grew up and were raised. But we both loved the woods and lakes and ocean and being out in nature. And that was you know, most of our dates, uh, canoeing or hiking. And so when I interviewed for residency in Portland and ranked the Portland program number one, we were thrilled to move to Maine. And that's been our home for over 30 years. And Jack, how about you? How would you describe your origin story as an artist? Well, and I, and I think I, I told you in the past that, so I, I before I met Minda, I was uh, right out of high school. I was on a submarine for four years, active duty in, in the U.S. Navy. Thought after that, when I was still in Hawaii, because I was stationed in Pearl Harbor, let's see what's close to submariner duty. Uh, I know I'll drive the Zamboni at the ice rink in Aiea Heights, Hawaii, Ice Palace. That was a little odd. And then I came back <laughs> to the East Coast and uh, was a forest ranger for the Boy Scouts of America the four years while Minda was in med school. When we moved to Maine, though, we had decided that we were going to have kids and that I was going to be the stay-at-home dad and work part-time for myself which worked out really well. And I, I could not do what I've been known for without Minda because mm. um, it was her sacrifices that allowed me to not have a full-time job for mm. quite a, a long time. But I did have the kids at home until they, you know, got on the bus. That, when they both got on the bus that first time and I went, oh, I have like six hours. <laughs> did you stop? Yeah. It was great, but, yeah. but it was great raising them too. I, I loved raising our boys here and, I think they're better off for growing up here with a lot less than most kids in their generation. I think you brought up what is sometimes an unspoken assumption or, you know, maybe an elephant in the room. But for artists, you know, it is rare to be able to, you know, make a living in, you know, the lifestyles that we kind of envision from art. And so, you know, when you say it's because of Minda's sacrifice, I would say support, right? You've supported each other in many ways. But I think that is a stumbling block that is unspoken or implicit for many artists is that ability to be able to kind of square being able to sustain yourself financially while also giving enough spaciousness for the full expression of your art. So I really appreciate that you acknowledge that because it's really, it's a true thing that we don't often discuss. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that little train of thought. Yeah, we actually, it, it's very interesting in our area, we have probably at least six friends who are female docs, married to artists, uh, cabinet makers, woodworkers. And, you know, it's not random that yeah. we've, we've all ended up there and, and it has provided camaraderie and and it's just interesting that people have chosen to come to this area first women in medicine which you know has become more of a norm but wasn't necessarily you know years ago and that these artists and woodworkers can actually stay home and and do their art be primary caregivers for the children so it's it's a neat microcosm 
Well, it's it seems like a fundamental paradigm shift of your own design, sure. which is, you know, it's beautiful um, because we do certainly have certain, you know, narratives about careers and roles and, and all of those things. So, Minda, when you said at the beginning that you've, you've been thinking about being a doctor since you were two years old, <laughs> tell me more. Well, maybe it was three, but when I was two, my sister released the emergency brake on the station wagon and ran me over. Oh, um, which I laugh about now because I have zero memory. But I was in the hospital for weeks and we had a family doctor who would round on me every day. And the story is that I wouldn't eat the hospital breakfast. So his wife would make me a soft boiled egg in a cup with some bread and he would bring it on rounds. And I developed an amazing relationship, I guess, with Dr. Chasen, who I called Daka Che at two. And, um, you know, I think I loved science and mathematics and just always loved medicine. So I, I really think that was an early seed. Uh, my mom was an occupational therapist and I would go to work with her as a very young child and sit on the laps of double amputee patients and mm. befriend them and play games with them. And when I was mm. old enough, I'd bring in my guitar and sing You Are My Sunshine with them. So I've always loved the healthcare setting. And then what finalized it was my dad wouldn't let me join him in his plumbing business um, and said, <laughs> I don't care that you want to be a plumber. You're going to be a doctor. <laughs> what made you want to join him in his plumbing business? I loved plumbing. I think he says that being a doctor is just like being a plumber with humans. That was his excuse for me to go to medical school. I don't know. But I, I loved using my hand and fixing things. I had my own workshop when I was a kid. I just thought it was cool. And, you know, had I known now, it would have been a, probably a more sane lifestyle, but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. And at one point, I thought about becoming a marine biologist. Hmm. And I spent a semester at an oceanography lab in St. Croix and loved it. I decided that would be a hobby. And I came back to take my MCATs hmm. and then followed the medical dream. And I'm glad I did. I love being a doctor. Her and patients are glad she's a doctor, too. Her patients <laughs> yes. are very happy that she's a doctor. I I lived in your town. I would be grateful to have you as my children's doctor. Goodness gracious. But I am also a plumber. Oh, so, yeah. So, <laughs> so not too long ago, Minda, she does a lot of home visits. Not a lot. But well, some. a fair amount. More than most uh -huh. visit we know. And uh, she came home so happy. She says, I did a home visit today and fixed the woman's toilet. She oh, put a whole slope in it and everything. And I was like, you have to post that on your DPCB site. <laughs> Rent primary care and plumbing on a house call. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that I got amazing. cheering from somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Oh, just making dad proud. Oh, gosh. Well, I wonder, you know, since you had that kind of seed and you felt so clear about that from such a young age, was there ever a time, and this is for either of you, but was there ever a time when you had kind of a, a crisis of confidence or a sense of feeling kind of disconnected from the purpose-driven part of your work where you, where you thought, I don't know if this is quite lining up. Have you ever hit any potholes like that along the way? I definitely did. So after I graduated, graduated res, finished residency, I took my first job and it was an employed position. So I was an employed doctor for a small family practice group and also did admissions and ER work and on call at the hospital and survived. I'm going to say survived. I, I really loved the community mm -hmm. and I always described I love being behind the exam room door with my patient. But once I left that exam room, administration and politics 
and regulations that didn't make sense to me. This wasn't about safety. This was just, you know, top-down direction of how you're going to do things, how many people you're going to see. Like, I remember statistics like, if you saw a quarter more patients every day, you could bring in this much more revenue, you know, please just send in your foot. But I literally got into a really depressed place um, and just couldn't believe it. I had put this much time into training and my dream and this is what it was. And fortunately, decided that it was the location and the model I was in and not not medicine in general. Mm. And I was able to leave there and um, had two other docs who basically like jumped on the wagon, didn't ask them. <laughs> just like they were like, great, we'll come with you. And we opened our own practice. Mm. But unfortunately, I think a lot of doctors are in the type of practice I was originally in. And it accounts for a lot of burnout. Mm -hmm. And it also is the model that most young people see when they're thinking about going into medicine. Mm -hmm. And if I could get anything out there, I'd love for them to know that there are other models that can actually fulfill them as being the doctor they wanted to be. So yeah, that was quite a low point and very scary for me. Well, wasn't that a change like in medicine in general when you started? Like that's when the HMOs really kind of bloomed. And it was like the change from to medicine as a business. So sort of kind of. Yeah, there were a lot of changes back yeah. then. I mean, I I went into medicine with HMO, so I that didn't bother me. But there's a lot of business people and corporate people directing how things are run in medicine and not the people who actually give the care mm -hmm. and are the, the people on the front line. Yeah. And there were many times where I said to an administrator, I would like you to just do 24 hours of my day with me and call and see what it's really like. Walk in my shoes. And surprisingly, they never did that. I just think it's interesting that you, you know, you brought up the word fulfill, right? Because something that we've been discussing is, you know, how to connect the dots between achievement, especially when we have a sense of what it looks like to be, air quotes, right, successful in a certain field and how to connect the dots or sometimes disconnect those two things and make our way closer to fulfillment, right? And actually feeling fulfilled in the work that we do or in how we're spending our days, right? People listening to this are probably from in all different stages and phases of life. So when you were in the model that was not, that you knew was not where you wanted to stay, walk me through what your process was like, if you can remember, because sometimes we don't even really remember, you know, how we got there. But it's interesting to think about in retrospect, how you arrived at this is the next right thing. I'm going to jump ship. I'm going to open my own practice. And that feels like the next right thing to do because you're busy. You're working all the time. You're caring for patients. You know, can you point to a particular moment or a period of time where you really felt like you knew what the next right thing was? And if so, how did you arrive at that moment? I remember clearly because I'm the kind of person who will really go to the next person, to the next person, to the next person to try to change something to make it right and seem like it's fair and just. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple events that happened in the first practice where in my head, I was like, am I crazy? Like this does not make sense. I just have to get the right set of ears so they will confirm like, oh my gosh, you're so right. This doesn't make sense. We're going to change it. And um, it didn't happen. I was closed off. 
So I literally went to my senior partner and I said, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but I have to leave the practice. I'm looking at a job in Seattle. I'm looking at a job. I thought I had to move. And I said, in my heart, in my mind, I know what I think a practice should look like and how patients should be treated and cared for, but I don't have the business sense. And he reached into his drawer. He, this guy was so disorganized, but he had about 20 charts on his desk and he reached into his drawer and took out a three-page like graph paper sheet that was taped together. And he said, Minda, I have a business model, but I have no idea what I want the office to look like. I felt like it was the Reese's commercial. <laughs> and we both looked at each other and I never thought he would leave. I mean, he was so loyal. And then we both said like, let's start our own practice. And we then called our third partner who was out on maternity leave and they wouldn't let her come back part-time. Mm. And we said, how do you feel about joining us and starting your own practice? You can work part-time. She said, I'd love to work two days a week. And we said, this is about family medicine. This is about being yourself, trusting your values and um, setting a great example for our patients. And the three of us started to practice. My observations for Minda's career has been she always loved medicine. She loves her patients. She cares for her patients so well, but she was so limited in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And the limits got harder and harder until they left. And when they did their 13 years as an independent practice, which the hospital was like, oh, they'll be back in a month. And they exceeded far beyond what, what they expected. And then the evolution from that to what she's doing now is even greater, where she is actually loving caring for her patients because she can give them all the time they need. It's yeah. not 15 minutes. So Amazing. And dare I say, I imagine that in following this path on your own, you've in turn also given permission to other physicians who might have felt that systemically this was not aligned with their values and kind of forged a path for them to say, well, maybe I could do what she's doing. I think we have. And there are, Jack was alluding to my direct primary care route now, which I started almost seven years ago. And that is truly independent and it's growing nationwide. Within Maine and the Northeast, we have new practices of direct primary care opening all the time. And I love seeing residents coming directly out of residency doing the, the direct primary care. We call it DPC. And that's something I knew nothing about. But again, it was a happier transition where from the independent family practice to this, because my partner, like he was retiring to go to his next chapter of life in medicine. So this was sort of a, it was a sad ending because I was the only doc that was left, but it wasn't because of admin or problems like that. It was a natural transition. Yeah. And I fortunately had two direct primary care docs in Maine who mentored me and literally took me under their wings and said, this is what it is. This is how you can do it. You know, here's all the positives. Here's some of the negatives. And it was literally a logarithmic curve. I decided to do it in September and opened in January. And I'll tell you as much as you want about direct primary care, but it really has opened a new world for care for patients and care for physicians. Well, I'm inspired and I can tell <laughs> that you are too, right? Yeah. Like when you find that, find that thing, it's like, and I know that before we started talking, you said you were a little bit nervous about being on a podcast and not nervous now. No. And you get talking. No, you're absolutely it. Yeah, no, yeah. this is what I do. I'm, I'm very comfortable with this. Well, I'm curious, and I think it's not too much of a pivot, but Jacques, if I can ask you, knowing what, you know, what we just heard from Minda, what does good work mean to you? 
Wow. As I said before, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have Minda as my support. And it allows me to be more attentive to, I, I say this when I teach, I say, make what you like, like what you make. Instead of making what you need to make to keep people, you know, keep the, the business happy, the business side of things. And I think if you follow that sort of that rule, that it's sort of like the field of dreams. Um, you know, if you build it, they will come. And so I, I think about that quite a bit. There's been times when I've had to make other things thinking that would be another way to financially support things, which have not been fun. They're not enjoyable. They're not. You know, it's it's more of a have to than just creating something that I want to create. And I've been fortunate enough to say that people have enjoyed most of what I've made. But There's so much. It's very hard for me to when someone says, what does your husband do? Oh, yeah. And I often pull up his work online because I say, well, he's he works on a lathe, but he sculpts wood. Then he, he carves it and he colors it. And it has 25 layers. And, you know, I go through the process, but I'm like, how do you explain to somebody that finished piece that is just mm -hmm. magical and you touch it and it has magic and you look at it as magic and, you know, that a piece of art could stimulate your different senses. <laughs> so it is the whole picture is worth a thousand words is true for your art. And then the handholding of it is worth a million words. I was very shocked by some of the people that have bought my work in the past where they'll come back and say, you know, that piece we bought from you last year, we keep it in our bedroom so that we see it when we wake up and we see it when we go to bed. And I was like, oh, my God, like <laughs> what a compliment that yeah. it's not just a piece of art for them. They want to handle it. They want to experience more about it because yeah. it's tile and it fits in the palm of your hands, which is really important to me. You know, I, I've had collectors, the bigger collectors will say, you know, Jack, we want your biggest, best work. And I would say, well, my best work isn't big. Mm. So buy the little ones because they're better and you can have a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it sounds like it's important to you when you say, you know, make what you like and like what you made to keep the integrity of that. So even when you have collectors and they want more, being able to say in integrity, I'm going to continue to make what I like. And if you like it, too. You can have more of it, but I'm not going to compromise my integrity. So is there an yeah. integrity piece about oh, it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, uh, I, I've always shied away from commissioned work because mm. of that sense. So some people are so easygoing about commission. They just go, well, we like what you do. This is what we're thinking. Mm -hmm. Do whatever you want. And I go, great. You know, and I also say in that case or the more restrictive cases, I say, look, I'll do this. But in the end. If you don't like it, that's okay. You know, I'll do something else with it. You don't have to be obligated for it unless you really want it. And nine times out of ten, they want it, of course. But yeah, and 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 that's something I'm always shying away from more as I get older mm. because it's more about do what you enjoy doing. I wonder, just for fun, for both of you, something that only you might be able to teach us. And there are no rules here. This does not need to be about medicine, does not need to be about art making, but something that we might only be able to learn from you. And I don't know where we're going to go from here. It might be funny. We don't know. Well, there's things that we can't share, but <laughs> <laughs> I would say the doctor family. We moved oh, to Maine, yeah. just the two of us. Our family you know, most of our family is in the is in on the East Coast. Mm. But you know, we were coming to Maine, and it was like, where are you going? 
His his grandparents even said, I've looked all over the New York state map and I can't find Maine anywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> so people think we are, you know, in the tundra somewhere. We have created community and such a support system. And I think going back to what you said earlier about fulfillment, some of our best friends that we still, you know, we're very close with today, we kind of co-family when our children were young. So we created aunts and uncles and second and third moms and dads and our children, you know, even being in an area where there are no grandparents here or cousins or aunts or uncles really feel loved and supported. And we do too. If we needed help, you can literally like sound the alarm and the community we live in is just like that. People will reach out. But for us, we have developed the whole family here. That's something you could never have taught me about or or told us we would end up doing. Not that's not something that you learn when you're preparing for your med school exam. How to find no, no. that or my family. That or my non-MBA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the things for me in my career has been collaboration. But it resonates to what Minda just said, because those are collaborations where we would collaborate with other families to make life easier for everyone, whether it be, you know, let the kids get off the bus together at one house or another, because, well, in our case, it was me. I was home, yeah. you know, and they could all come here. Actually, we used to do that with the Cub Scouts <laughs> every Monday for eight years, every Monday during school. All the Cub Scouts would get off the bus at our house. <laughs> And we'd take them for a hike in the woods. It was great. But it was that collaboration. And I, I don't think I've ever thought about it that way, that a lot of that we learned together. But then I was more exposed to it in my career in the more recent years through the projects that you mentioned, the, the project in Turkey and Nepal and Cambodia and Austria and all those other places. But that's something that I feel I, I've exposed people to, whether it's been professionally or teaching or in just life, to get people to be willing to get, let their guard down and collaborate with someone who can benefit you, but also benefit them. If it's mutually beneficial, then everybody wins. And if it doesn't work, it's okay. But with the collaboration, I always say it has to be positive. So you brainstorm, you throw out ideas, none of them are bad, everything's possible, and you filter out the ones that are going to work best and things move on. Not everyone can do that, but I think that's something that, that we've taught people. Something I, I thought about what he was describing is also like the woodworking community. When I meet wood turners or sculptors or, or we travel and we stay with someone, um, they're like, Manda! And I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I haven't met them before, but within about 10 minutes, it feels like we've known each other forever and we're helping each other to a, a glass in the kitchen. And that's been worldwide. I mean, traveling in France, yeah. we've had that. Traveling in Nepal, we've had that. And we've had it here. Well, we've had it here a lot. Yeah. Um, but it's just that it's the sense of there's so many people in the world that you don't know, and you meet them, and you click, and you have common good, and your motives are the same, which are like we want to create beauty, and we want to share this beauty with other people. And then when you see how other people respond to it, like the project in Nepal, when the children came out of their classroom, God, yeah. they built a collaborative piece, art sculpture, that was a playground wow. on a private school in Nepal. Very, you know, the children, indigent children, and they the children helped them do this sculpture. And then we had this opening and the kids were able to climb on it and through it and touch it. 
and point out what they had designed. I made that giraffe. I told them to put my hand there. I mean, the whole community and then sculptors from 24 different countries were all there. And you're, <laughs> you step back and you say, this is amazing. We could never have imagined this. And we did it in 14 days in most cases. And I'm still very good friends with 99% of those people. I get messages from them all the time. I see them at other events. In fact, Minda and I were, were just in Ireland in July on a music tour with a, a well-known fiddle player, Eileen Ivers. And one day they said, oh, we're going to this pub to have some musicians join us. Every day we did that. And one of them is an Irish pipe player who makes pipes, and his name is John. John. So he was he was pipe a player. he was a uh, pipe Irish pipe, pipe player. Yeah. And they said his name, and I went, I know a pipe maker and player with that name, and it was him. We met in China wow. on a World Wood Day project. And I went over. And I said, I don't know if you remember me, John. And he went, Jack, what are you doing here? <laughs> I was like, you know, everybody was like, wait a minute, you guys met each other in. China and then he went and Turkey and uh, <laughs> and all these other places. So. Wow, I mean, what you know, what I hear when you're telling these stories is the power of of art and the creative process to connect people and to kind of build bridges between people that may not otherwise have visible or logical things in common. And isn't that beautiful? Yeah, and just exposure to that, and, and I think that that exposure for everyone i think mm -hmm. not just the people involved i think bringing that back to your community and exposing them to what you did in those these farmlands all also very just very helpful for people to look outside their normal box yeah. um, in fact it, when we did the nepal project every year i would design a shirt we started that in turkey where i didn't tell anyone and i printed shirts for the whole team and after we came up with the design, everyone got a shirt and it was like a uniform. Everybody was like connected. And the mm -hmm. organizers were like, we have to do this every year. So for Nepal, I had put a quote on the back of the shirt that basically said, uh, where others think outside the box, we didn't recognize there was a box at all. And the crew loved it. You know, they're like, yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And we've had this conversation before, right? And I love that you, you know, consider the duality of working internationally, right? And the power of bringing people together and getting out of your comfort zone, expanding your worldview. Um, but at the beginning, right, you also mentioned making sure that the importance of things being, you know, mutually beneficial. And, you know, you've shared with me that You've also paused and and reflected on some of the international work that you've done so to make sure that when you do travel and when you go to another country and you're interacting and exchanging with people who are, you know, we are entering in as visitors into their world, that you're not hurting by trying to help. We had that conversation and I thought that was a beautiful, you know, reflection that you've also had. And it's so important to do both. And I'm curious if there are any insights that you've had having worked and done collaborative art projects all over the world in international communities. I'm curious if you have any any insights on that piece of the puzzle. One of my my old high school teachers, who I'm still very good friends with, who's retired from teaching, he was my English teacher in at least two years of high school, plus he was my track coach. And he's actually a supporter of my art. He's collected some of my artwork in retirement. And um, after we did the Turkey project and he saw the documentary, the half hour documentary, he, he wrote 
back to me or to someone and said, take this group of people and put them in charge of something in the world because they'll fix it. And I didn't think about it until he said that, but it does look like a positive way of coming out with a solution that will grow. And it's like having a boss who only tells you what he wants you to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas if the whole crew collaborates, everybody's happy and you're probably going to end up with a better outcome in the end. Sounds a little bit like a, an independent family practice. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Very much so. <laughs> so Leah, as you, yeah, you also have the Arusha connection. And um, I was thinking about when we went to the cradle orphanage, basically, to do a little work. Jack and our sons ended up doing a garden project and building a brick garden and such. And they had a few, they had several infants there that were sick and they were telling us how we have to take them to the hospital and this is the routine and, you know, they can't always get the care and these are the hours, whatever. And there was a stethoscope. So I examined some of the children. And as soon as I took that stethoscope out, it was like this magical wand. Mm -hmm. All of the care providers there would started to lie down on, and there was a language barrier, started to lie down on cots and lift up their shirt and wanted me to listen to their heart. They had never had a checkup that this whole world of medicine and care and that I could come and examine the baby and say, this one still has pneumonia and this one's rash is due to yeast. And, you know, these are the medicines we need and that we could go to the pharmacy and buy the medicines for them. You know, we often say first world problems, you know, when we start complaining about something, it's so true. And I, one of my goals is to do international medicine. And when Jack and I travel, there's always somebody who needs him to fix something or create something that isn't working. And then they need me to do something medical. And it's, I don't think it bothers us because we feel like it's so wonderful to be able to help, which is much different than when people here are like, yeah. I hate to ask you, but... Um, yeah. And I think there is this very real, you know, we say that giving feels good. Right? It, feels, yeah. it feels good to be able to help and to know that you are making a difference. Right. And I think a lot of people can identify with feel like we, we have that feeling that we really are. We're making a connection that is truly helping. And my call to action, I suppose, for all of us is always to trust that feeling and question that feeling and make sure that it's not just about our feeling, right? Yeah. When we're going to help so that we can be truly helpful if that's what we are called to do. So I won't get up too much on the soapbox about that, but I think that, you know, we share that same ethos and we want to, you know, we want to follow that impulse and do so in a way that is treating others with dignity and care um, the way that you treat your patients, right? The way that you really care for and see others for who they are. I, you know, the direct primary care movement is a new, definitely a new movement for a lot of people. They have no idea what it is. Mm. And it basically sort of solves itself. So when someone comes in and says, tell me about direct primary care, I say to them, tell me what works for you in the medical system and tell me what doesn't work. Because, I mean, we do the direct primary care so that we can offer health care in a way that works for people, makes them feel like they're listened to, that they're being treated fairly and cost effectively and not being rushed through a system. And then the person will say, well, you know, I, I can never get a human to talk to. I have to push buttons or I always have to wait to be seen or my doctor keeps leaving. They're like burning out and leaving or 
you know, every time I tell somebody my whole story, they've left and I have to get used to somebody else or I'm sent to the ER or I'm sent to urgent care. And then we, you know, we explain to them, like, this is a direct relationship with your doctor. You're going to see me. You're going to talk to me. Imagine, (laughs) imagine like something that seems so logical, but hearing their responses about, wow, thank you for listening. Thank you for being there. I had a 97-year-old patient this morning whose partner called me and said, you cured her on the phone yesterday just by talking to her. Just knowing that you can reach somebody and speak to them and that whole humanistic side of life that we lose when we're rushing and doing things because we're doing it the way we're told to do it or the way it's supposed to be done instead of challenging the system and saying, you know what, this doesn't work for my family or this doesn't work for me. And how can we take a little turn and and have the support and confidence to make that turn, which you clearly have and you use that. It's very kind of you to say. Well, and, and you said a little while ago, you said that like not about making yourself feel good. But in the long run, it really is. It really is about, I mean, the way Minda takes care of her patients, she feels so much better about it. And she's so yeah. proud of herself when she can come home and say, I did this today. Yeah. Whereas I don't know that most of her peers can do that in the business of medicine. So, um, yeah, you know, I think it really is just yin and yang, light and shadow, all the, you know, the just the dual nature of so many things that we have to, it is about how we feel and that how we feel about something is then going to drive, you know, what we do about solving a challenging problem. It's going to drive how we show up to connect with other people. I tell you, I could stay on and talk with you both for <laughs> a lot longer than we have, but I know we'll do it on a hike. We will do it on a hike. And yeah. I, I also, I did want to, you know, tease out that it was intentional that you made your life more centered around nature and slowing down and making sure that you have time and that you prioritize that canoe ride or that hike or the walk with the Cub Scouts. And, you know, to some that might seem luxurious. And in fact, it's a priority. And I can see that that's Mm -hmm. part of your lifestyle. And I imagine, you know, one of the things that you turn to when you need to slow down so that you can be more thoughtful and conscious. I think think if you asked us when we were in our 20s and in residency or med school or whatever, starting off together in our lives, what we would be doing now, Minda would never have said, well, I'm going to be a direct primary care doctor because that's right. then. And I would never have said, oh, yeah, I'll probably be traveling around the world like three different places a year. But it all comes together. It all pans out. Thanks so much for having us. You are just the most delightful. I'm <laughs> so grateful for your time and your insights and generosity of sharing sharing your perspectives and your story. And I know that anyone who's listened to this is probably going to have a number of follow-up questions, um, such as, Minda, people want to learn more about direct primary care. Where should they go? They can go to DPC Frontier, which is a, a great website that lists sort of the basics of primary care and a map of the U.S. where there are direct primary care sites. And then in New England, we have our own group. It's called NEDPCA, which stands for New England Direct Primary Care Association. Yeah, we're collectively educating people and supporting each other with this movement of providing health care. Beautiful. 
I'll make sure to put all of that in the show notes. And Jacques, if folks want to learn more about your work and also perhaps what if they're local and in town and they want to drop by the local nonprofit that you work together with. Oh, yeah. Where should they go on the Internet to find out more about those things? Best for me for my work is Facebook and and Instagram at this point. And if you're in Damascata, uh, visit the Peace Gallery, which is a collaborative nonprofit that supports veterans art. So awesome. I'm just touched by all of your efforts to show up in a way that aligns with your values and values of people to do the same. Thank you both so much for being here. This was the best. Thank you. Great to see you. Thanks for listening, friends. I'd love for you to join this conversation and hear your perspective too. To connect with us, head over to leahleonard.me and way to go. Good work.